Good afternoon. Uh, our next case is State versus Robinson, and I'll note that Justice Berger is recused. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court. My name is Jessica McCary. I am an Assistant Attorney General with the North Carolina Department of Justice here on behalf of the State in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, if I may. Your Honors, this is a case in which the defendant pleaded guilty to three different assaults. Assault on a female, assault inflicting serious bodily injury, and assault by strangulation. At the time of the guilty plea, the judge determined that there was a factual basis for that plea. He concluded that there were distinct interruptions and distinct assaults, and by pleading guilty, all we have is the factual basis that was given in this, this case. The defendant's plea took away the need for the state to prove the case beyond that. Of course, Your Honors, since the briefs were filed in this case, this court published its opinion in State v. Due. In that case, this court held that the state may charge multiple assaults when there is evidence of its distinct interruption. Well, what does that mean? A distinct interruption, according to this court, is an intervening event, a lapse of, a lapse of time in which a reasonable person could calm down, an interruption in the momentum of the attack, a change in location, or some other clear break delineating the end of a, one assault and the beginning of another. This court did note that the fact that a victim has multiple distinct injuries alone would not be sufficient evidence of a distinct interruption, such that a defendant can be charged with multiple counts of assault. Um, but this court also said that evidence that a defendant used different methods of attack of attacks can show a distinct interruption depending on the totality of the circumstances. Your Honor, it's the state's position here that there is a f- sufficient factual basis to support three assaults. Let's look at the length of the imprisonment and the defendant's actions. This was a three-day captivity in which the defendant held the victim captive in their home. Distinct interruption was the standard at the time applied in the Court of Appeals, and defendant and his counsel agreed that there were distinct interruptions to support these three assaults. Your Honor, over three days, there had to be ebbs and flows in the momentum of the attack. There had to be lapses of time to calm down, to eat, to go to the bathroom. The victim here also testified at one point or I'm sorry, in her um, questioning by the court at the, at the plea that um, they were drinking and she poured the beer out. Um, that certainly could be an intervening event that would give him time to calm down. She also said she locked herself in the bathroom and that he broke two doors at some point trying to get to her and that she blacked out twice. All of these facts that she remembers and that she said um, support the distinct interruption as it was described in State versus Due. She also said that he was, quote, getting ill. A a literal reading of that to me suggests that he was perhaps vomiting if they were drinking to the point where she had to pour the beer out. Or it could just mean that he was getting more heated, had been less heated, again, that there were ebbs and flows in this attack. And it wasn't a situation where he spent three straight days assaulting the victim, punch after punch after punch for three days. I'll also note, Your Honor, that factual basis is far lower than sufficiency of the evidence to go to the jury. Um, and requiring factual basis when it's a plea bargain to have detail such as sufficiency of the evidence to go to the jury would be problematic. Um, the factual basis test is just to prove that it was, in fact, the defendant, the identity of the person that did this, and that there is something beyond the plea itself to show that this defendant committed these acts. Um, we would not want to make it hard for prosecutors to accept pleas or for police to go through. As we know, they are a critical part of the criminal justice system and often benefit defendants. I want to touch briefly on the standard of review. 
Um, the test here, as I stated, is well established, whether there's some substantive material beyond the plea itself that tends to show the defendant is guilty. This court has not specifically said what the standard of review is in this situation. The Court of Appeals said it was de novo because they thought this was an issue of statutory interpretation. The state's position is that the appellate court should give some deference to the trial court because the inquiry is fact-bound and it's a narrow and limited test. But even under a de novo standard, it's the state's position that the, the the factual basis that supported this plea support the distinct interruptions in this assault. Let me ask you about, uh, you've alluded to it, we're up here uh, not after a jury trial, not after a full uh, presentation of the evidence. Uh, We're up here on a negotiated plea. Um, How does that distinguish negotiated plea? Uh, How does that, how is that distinguished from a jury trial where the evidence has been uh, fully uh, presented, and particularly with regard to, you've alluded to uh, several situations that could be an interruption, uh, certainly uh, uh, would appear to be at least an interruption in their relationship, but we don't have precisely when, what, uh, any of the different assaults occurred. Uh, what, do, what are we to do with all that? That's right, Your Honor. Um, This is a plea, and a full trial record certainly would have elicited all of the evidence, medical records, more testimony, so on and so forth. Um, And I would submit that any lack of clarity that we have here is because the defendant chose to plead guilty, and all that has to be presented when he does choose to plead guilty is the factual basis, which, um, again, is much less than than the test of whether the evidence is sufficient to go to the jury. Well, I haven't seen it particularly argued, but... Uh, it seems to me that we've talked about that a plea agreement is like a contract. Uh, what if, if part of it goes away, if the court finds part of it to be uh, inappropriate, uh, why doesn't that void the whole plea agreement as opposed to what the Court of Appeals did, which was to modify uh, the plea agreement. Uh, why shouldn't the state have the option to just proceed to trial if that's what they want? I, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question correctly. Could you read so, so the Court of Appeals says, well, um, even though the defendant admitted to three, to, to a factual basis for three assaults, uh, we're going to say that two of them uh, are not appropriate, so we're going to modify the plea agreement. Well, that's a, that's a contract. So how does, why should a court modify the contract as opposed to just say, well, the, the plea agreement goes away uh, because uh, the defendant can't fulfill it, and mm-hmm. okay. we'll just start from square one or give the uh, parties the opportunity to negotiate another plea agreement? I think the correct remedy would be to remand to the trial court for additional findings of fact. I think the state should be given that opportunity. Um, I don't think the Court of Appeals could just order them to proceed to trial. Um, that would not be a burden on, on the parties to, to remand back to the trial court and redo the plea in this case. When you say findings of fact, what do, what do you mean? If the, if the court were to determine that there um, was not a sufficient factual basis to support the three assaults based on um, the test as espoused in state, be, in state versus due, um, I think that would be the proper remedy. Of course, we are not conceding that at all, 
Um, it is the State's course, position. I, I guess maybe I'm just being overly technical, but when you say findings of fact, that to me means the trial court makes some sort of factual determination. Are you meaning instead that the State gets a further opportunity to provide more detail in its factual basis yes, statement? Yes, I, I, I misspoke. It would be that okay. the State would get more opportunity to flat, further flesh out um, pursuant to what the court has since issued in due um, further facts to support um, the factual basis. Again, the sufficiency of the factual basis is so much lower than the sufficiency of the evidence to go to the jury. Um, but if there is more that is required to be put on the record, the state would have the opportunity to do so. But, but didn't you tell us just a few minutes ago that um, the standard that, that was um, articulated in due was the standard that the Court of Appeals had been following, and so it was the law. It wasn't the, the, the notion that there needs to be some kind of interruption to support multiple assaults was the understanding at the time the plea was taken? Well, let me just, let's start here. Okay. <laughs> Would you agree with me that the um, question of whether or not there was an interruption um, to support multiple conviction, assaults for multiple, or convictions for multiple assaults, isn't that distinct interruption doctrine the one that the Court of Appeals applied here before, before it had the benefit of our decision? Yes, it did. And we were contending that um, prior to State versus Due that Rambert should have been applied. I think Rambert is probably too broad. Um, due is narrow and it's brand new and I would urge the court in this situation to expand on due for other factual scenarios and just modify um, the court's own opinion in that case. Your Honors, I want to touch briefly on an argument raised um, by the defendant in this matter and that's about the granting of the writ of certiorari. Um, defendant claims that that is the issue before this court but he is wrong. Um, the dissent in this case was based on the factual basis for the three assaults um, the petition must make a showing of merit and that error was committed below. The merits can't be split from the, de the decision of whether to grant the, the petition. Um, so both the majority and the dissent opined on the um, merits in granting the, pe the petition, but we cannot now escape review of the, the substantive points of jurisprudence that the Court of Appeals um, wrote in their published opinion. So that, I think that argument would be correct if, if the court had ruled on the petition but not the merits, but that's not what happened. So we are properly here um, on the factual basis issue. Your Honors, if there are no further questions, I will yield the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, Associate Justice of the Court, may it please the Court, my name is Dylan Buffum. I represent Mr. Louis Robinson in this matter. Uh, there have been a lot of good questions from the bench during my colleague's argument. Um, I plan to address all of those questions. Um, but first I want to point out that uh, due is controlling in this case, and the decision in this case is going to write itself. Um, the only issue before this court, this, this case is up here on a dissent in the Court of Appeals, and therefore the only issue before this court is the issue which was raised by the dissent. 
the sole issue, the sole dispute between the judges below was whether or not there was a sufficient factual basis or a showing in the petition of a, of a factual basis issue that needed to be addressed. Um, the majority looked at the petition and said, under the distinct interruption test, there's enough of a showing here that we're going to allow the writ. Then they conducted their analysis, they applied the appropriate standard of review, and they found that there was, no, there was an insufficient factual basis to find a distinct interruption. The dissent would not have issued the writ. And for that reason, the dissent didn't raise the question of a standard of review. The dissent didn't consider whether or not there was a, it was de novo or some degree of deference was required. The dissent simply said that the petition doesn't, it shouldn't be allowed because the dissent would have applied the, the Rambert test, which we now know doesn't apply. The other arguments were never briefed before, uh, before the court uh, below. Um, there was no dissent on the standard of review. Uh, and in fact, the dissent didn't dissent on the application of the distinct interruption test to the facts in this case either. The dissent didn't say, well, if that is the test, I would find a distinct interruption. The dissent said, that's not the test. I am going to address the issue of remedy two, um, which was raised. I think that that's an important issue. Um, but first, let me start by talking about applying the distinct interruption test, which has been adopted by this court, um, to, the, to the facts of this case. Um, as the state mentioned, uh, this court listed in due uh, several examples of what might constitute a distinct interruption, an intervening event, a lapse in time, uh, during which a reasonable person could calm down, interruption in the momentum of the attack, a change in location, or some other clear break delineating the, uh, one assault from another. None of that is apparent from this record. Um, the police arrived shortly after midnight. The state said, the prosecutor said, during the assault, the singular assault that occurred over that night, and my colleague makes a big deal out of the fact that there was an allegation that the, she had been held captive for three days, but nothing in the record suggests that the assault of behavior occurred over the course of that three days or over any extended period of time except for that immediate moment right before the police arrived. In fact, the, uh, Ms. Wilson, in addressing the court, describes the assault as beginning when she poured out the beer, goes into the bedroom, um, and there's a struggle, uh, uh, an allegation that there was an strangulation uh, around the neck. The, the state in its briefing has taken the position that there's two different incidents of strangulation, which is hard to understand from the record because it's true that the prosecutor said he grabbed her by the neck, whereas she said that he used her elbow. The state has used the word forearm, which only appears in the warrants, not in the, not in the record. But if you read what they say, all of this happened at one point after they, ran into the be after they went into the bedroom on the bed. It happened, both the state and uh, Ms. Wilson talk about it happening during the uh, altercation where she had a box cutter. Um, so there's, the, the, the characterization of these events as occurring over three days just isn't supported by the record. Well, the, that's the whole problem here. We have a plea agreement. So you have a defendant twice on the record admitting that there are facts to support the plea. You have no one contesting, oh, there needed to be an interruption, there needed to be uh, uh, separate incidences, um, because it's in a, a plea stage, and the prosecutor, and certainly the trial court, 
are totally unaware that uh, someone's going to uh, contest on appeal uh, after uh, they've made their presentation. I mean, that's the whole, the whole problem here is we don't have a fully developed record like we do in the other cases, like we did in due, because of there having to be uh, evidence presented at a trial. I appreciate that point, Your Honor. The the problem of not having an adequate record is because the trial court failed to meet its duty under the statute. Well, what's the defendant's duty? The, he said, he the, said there's enough, there are factual, uh, uh, the facts are sufficient for me to plead guilty. Twice he said that. Your Honor, the, the, the statute requires the court to ensure, independent of the defendant's plea, that there is a sufficient factual basis for each element of each charge. The defense can stipulate that the facts recited by the state are true facts. What the defense can't stipulate is the question of law. Do those facts then support the charges that were charged? The, defense can, the parties can't walk into court and say, Your Honor, here's some facts. Those clearly constitute a crime. You don't have to worry about figuring out whether or not it's really a crime. The job of the judge is to, is to listen to those facts and make an independent legal determination as to whether or not the facts that have been stipulated are, in fact, uh, do, in fact, support the charges to which, to which a plea is being entered. And that brings me to... Um, How was the trial court wrong to apply the case that we had recently decided in Rampart? I don't think it's clear that the trial court applied any uh, case, uh, but Rampart has been rejected by this court. Uh, it well, was, it hasn't been rejected by this court. I, I, rejected in the context of, of, of determining the number of assault charges uh, but, but if the trial court didn't have the benefit of that, how was it supposed to discern that that's what it needed to do? The, the, the law has, in this state has been for quite a long time that a distinct interruption is necessary to establish multiple assault charges. Um, the trial court needed to look at these facts and say, where is the clear differentiation between these alleged acts that makes one, an ass one assault end and the next assault st uh, start. Uh, I don't think that the law was a mystery. Um, I don't think it was unreasonable to expect the court to do that. Um, and it's, it's the duty that's been imposed on the court by the statute to, uh, to do so. Well, let, let, let's assume for purposes of discussion that the trial court had properly applied the test in due as you have outlined it. So we go into the superior court. The defendant offers pleas of guilty to these three offenses. The state makes its factual basis statement, calls Ms. Wilson. You have the evidence or factual statements that we have before us. If your legal position is correct, it seems to me what should have happened is that the trial court should have rejected one or you know, two of these three proffered pleas. I right? Think Correct, Your Honor. So, that, so then, if if that's okay, go ahead. I would I would add that the court is perfectly capable, and it's perfectly appropriate for the court to say to the parties, you know, when I'm hearing from you is only facts supporting one assault. Is there a break here? Is there something more you? Well, want let, to let, let's say for purposes of discussion that the trial court didn't do that. The trial court just says, all right, I've listened to your factual basis presentation. I find that there's enough evidence here, there's enough information here to support a plea to assault inflicting furious bodily injury, but not enough to support these other two charges. What's the status of the other two charges at that point? 
the court is obligated to, this hasn't been briefed, um, but it seems to me that the court is obligated to reject, to not accept the guilty plea to a charge which isn't supported okay. by the factual basis. I mean, and that was what I, that was my, my guess too, but uh, assuming for purposes of discussion that the trial court rejected the plea, uh, would the state then be permitted to proceed to trial with respect to those two offenses? I would have to review the statutes regarding what the state the state's rights are when the court rejects a plea agreement. I can't answer that definitively. Okay. What I can say, Your Honor, is that at this stage, we're in a different posture. Uh, and the question from the bench has been raised about what the proper remedy uh, in this case would be if, if you were to uphold the, the Court of Appeals, the majority of the Court of Appeals. But isn't, excuse me, but isn't what happened here exactly the opposite? That, that, or at least to the extent that the first plea agreement that was reached by the parties was rejected by the court. That is correct, Your Honor. And the first plea, if I'm reading the record correctly, and so correct me if I'm wrong, the first plea agreement um, was to multiple assault charges, but they were for sentences to be served concurrently. Can't recall if it was a consolidated judgment or concurrent sentences, um, but it was. It would, in effect, have been one single sentence for the most severe, uh, uh, severe charge. And and if the basis, so then in in the hypothetical that or the scenario that Justice Irvin gave you, if the basis for the rejection of the plea to three separate assaults was because the factual basis only supported one presumably either the state could come back with some different facts or more facts, fill us in on, the, on how this assault occurred. But, but if that doesn't happen, and, and the only information is essentially that it was one assault, then it seems to me the court could accept the guilty plea to the most serious assault, but it couldn't accept the guilty plea to a serious assault and then go ahead and go to trial on two others that the court had already ruled are subsumed in the first. I think that this raises... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beg off here because I think that this hasn't been briefed and I'm not really prepared to answer it. Um, and that also, again, returns me to the question of the remedy here on appeal. Um, that was never briefed. The state has never, ever sought a, a total repudiation of this, of this plea agreement. Um, and perhaps that's because the state never really wanted a sentence longer than one, one assault conviction to begin with. Um, but in the, in, the, in the Court of Appeals, the state did not dispute the remedy that was sought. The, the state did not dispute the remedy that was in, before this court. It has not been briefed. And so it is the law of the case. Uh, this is this is outside the scope of the appeal that's before this court. Um, addressing Judge, uh, Justice Newby's uh, comment about contracts, it, it is true that when when there's a breach of a contract, one one party may be able to repudiate the whole contract, but they don't have to. And at this point, the state hasn't, um, and they had ample opportunity to do so. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, when did they have opportunity to do so if the plea was accepted in, in, in its entirety? Uh, the, 
when, when Mr. Robinson requested a, a rest of judgment to the Court of Appeals uh, and, and uh, remand for resentencing, the state had an opportunity to say that that wasn't the proper remedy if there was, a, if there was an insufficient factual basis. Uh, before this court, the state has had an opportunity to argue uh, that, that the Court of Appeals ordered the wrong remedy. Uh, the dissent below did not dispute the remedy. Uh, the dissent below was uh, limited in scope, as I said before, just to the uh, issuance or, or of the writ. Um, which brings us all the way back to that critical question. What, what, what issue is before this court? Uh, the issue that's before this court is whether or not the majority abused its discretion when it allowed the writ, because that's all the dissent encompassed. Uh, the dissent had a legal test that it would have applied um, that this court has said is not the legal test. Um, the majority did apply that legal test uh, and in its discretion allowed the so the decision here really writes itself. This is a per curiam affirmance um, because there is no showing, the state has not argued, uh, that it was an abuse of discretion to allow the writ. Um, the other issues, these ancillary issues, the issues of remedy, the issues of what standard of review apply, they were never within the scope of what the Court of Appeals, uh, of what was d disputed between the judges below um, and to a large part, the state didn't dispute the, the, the standard of review in the Court of Appeals either. It's not in the briefing of the state. The state never disputed that it was a de novo review. Um, I think that that is the one point that I will touch on unless the court has more questions, and that is that de novo standard review, uh, should this court proceed beyond the discretionary decision to, to allow the writ and address the, the, the actual application of the factual basis test. Uh, de novo is the appropriate standard of review. Um, the, the appellate bench, the appellate bar, is just as competent at looking at a record and determining whether or not there has been a recitation of the, the proper facts um, as the trial court is. And in fact, both all the way back to 1980 in Sinclair uh, and as recently as 2007 in Agnew, this court has affirmed the purpose of the trial court's duty is to make an appellate record of the factual basis. It says it right there in the, in the black letter of the case. The, 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 there should be an appellate record of the factual basis. And that's because the appellate bar, needs, the appellate bench, needs to be able to look at the record and say, did this meet the standard? Did the trial court meet the trial court's obligation under the statute? Uh, and so that's not a particularly onerous burden. And there's no reason that this court or the Court of Appeals should be giving any deference uh, to the determination that the factual basis is sufficient. Um, and just the last comment, it, it's, it's not a particularly onerous burden to say to the, for the prosecutor to, to say, you know what, this assault happened and then it stopped. And then that assault happened. Here's the sequence of events. Here's where the break was. That's why it's two assaults. We're not talking about making a prosecutor put on testimony. We're not talking about uh, dragging witnesses into the courtroom. This is a very simple thing to do. And it's very simple for the court to say, I don't quite hear it. Can you give me a little more detail? Um, so with that in mind, unless there's more questions from the bench, I'm going to uh, conclude by saying that regardless of whether this court affirmed per curiam uh, or issues a full opinion, regardless of whether the court reviews for abuse of discretion or for error, or for error of law, uh, 
and re regardless of whether the appellate standard for reviewing a factual basis is de novo or something vaguely more deferential uh, as proposed by the state, uh, this court should affirm the majority's decision because under state versus due, there just isn't a factual basis to conclude uh, that there was a distinct interruption uh, giving rise to three separate assault charges. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll be brief. I just want to touch on something that my colleague said. Um, he said it's his position that his understanding of the, of the factual record in this case was that the assault started when Ms. Wilson poured out the beer and then went into the bedroom. That, to me, suggests that um, there was, they were in one room, they were arguing, and then went into another room, um, which was part of the basis of the decision in State versus Due, that there were different rooms to show the distinct interruption. I also want to touch on something that Chief Justice Newby and Justice Earls pointed out. Um, Chief Justice Newby pointed out that twice during this um, colloquy, the defendant agreed with his counsel that there were distinct interruptions sufficient to support the factual basis for the pleas to the three assaults. He had counsel. They agreed. And as Justice Earls, I believe it was, pointed out, the initial plea was rejected. Um, the judge felt that the sentencing was not um, fitting enough for these actions and the defendant's um, extensive history of domestic violence. They went out, they had 20 minutes or so that they renegotiated the plea and came back to the court. Um, and then the plea was, was accepted with the um, sentences being consecutive rather than all in one or concurrent. I'm not sure. I can't remember, as, as counsel couldn't either, whether, whether it was consolidated or, or concurrent. Um, at that point, if there were still questions about the factual basis, the trial court certainly could have asked um, for more facts or explored further, but there just wasn't because there was a sufficient factual basis here. Um, and everyone agreed on that. The prosecutor agreed, um, the victim agreed, the defendant and his counsel agreed. If there are no further questions, I will conclude my argument. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Clark. 